This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer, composer, author, and so much more, Doan Perry. Doan's career spans over 28 years with the internationally acclaimed progressive rock band Jethro Tull, incorporating many world tours, countless records, videos and DVDs, and a Grammy. As a performer, composer, and producer, he has appeared on more than 100 records to date, many of which have attained gold or multi-platinum status, and also on numerous number one records in multiple genres. And as an author, he has been a featured writer for musical magazines, anthologies, book publications, websites, liner notes, as well as Jethro Tull concert programs. A few of the artists that Doan has worked with in the past include people like Lou Reed, Bette Midler, Todd Rundgren, Pat Benatar, Peter Cetera, Dweezil Zappa, Stan Getz, Dionne Warwick, and many more. To find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done on Working Drummer Podcast, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as iTunes, where you can rate and review this podcast. This helps us grow. This helps us reach new listeners and put on a better podcast for you. So find us on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. We're also on Stitcher and Spotify. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I have been doing here for over six years, you can find us on patreon.com slash working drummer for as little as a dollar per month. You have access to the educational material that we provide on our Patreon page provided by former guests. If Patreon isn't your thing, we have a PayPal button on our website, workingdrummer.net. You can go there and donate. We appreciate all the support over the years that we've gotten from you, our listeners, and we are excited about what 2021 is bringing to the table, and we hope you are too. Get it right at the source, the most common advice we hear when recording real drums. Well, tuned drums and good mic placement is a great place to start. What shouldn't be overlooked is the room or space where you're recording or practicing your drums. The time and energy it takes to work up and record a great performance shouldn't be wasted in a sonically bad environment. A proper mix of absorption, diffusion, and bass traps will improve the quality of your recordings, just as much as the investment you made in your drum set and your recording equipment. Sonatus USA provides the products and consultation for any situation, any size room to get your drums sounding the best they can. Whether you're recording, rehearsing, or mixing, having a great sounding room is essential. Check them out at sonatususa.com. That's S-O-N-I-T-U-S-U-S-A.com. So this is one of those rare interviews that we decided to break up into two parts. Doan was so generous with his time. Uh, we spoke on the phone a couple times before this interview and, and just tried to get an idea of what we wanted to cover and uh, just be as thorough as possible. Uh, we talk about drumming and concepts with that and his time with Jethro Tall and then uh, on part two uh, that's coming out in a couple weeks we're going to get into uh, composing and arranging so uh, it gets into the weeds with this and it's it's just it's amazing and he, he's just such a great orator and and you you can understand kind of the person he is uh, by our conversation. 
uh, and I just I so enjoyed speaking to him. I, I could have just spoken to him forever. Uh, and uh, we thank Doan so much for his time and his energy and his contribution to this podcast. And I, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Doan Perry. This is part one. typical week for you these days, or is that such a thing? Is there a typical week for you because you seem very busy? Um, no, there really isn't. Uh, but what I can say is typical is that I feel that I am happily working more hours than I ever did on the road by virtue of the fact that, that, um, the road, the way you you work there. Anybody who's you know been on tour knows exactly what I'm talking about. But you know, you might get up early and you travel, whether you're you know you're flying or driving or training or whatever to the next gig. You get to the next city, and then the way it would be um, very often with uh, Jennifer Paul was uh, you you get there, maybe have time for lunch. You I might have a time for a half an hour nap then there might be a, or there could be phone or interviews and and I, I looked at that the same way as I looked at performing and the the degree to which you can really articulate your thoughts about music when you're not playing music and trying to bring people into the experience uh, is just important as important to me as going out and playing clearly and passionately and, you know, articulately and, uh, as I can every night. So I, I in a lot of ways that that was sort of a different part of the gig. Then you, you'd have sound check. Then we might have a meet and greet. Then you, I'd get warmed up for the gig. I always had a sort of, been, you know, anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour ritual that I would go through in my dressing room to get prepared. And then afterwards there would often be a, meet and greet and your days are very very long but they're filled with different activities here um the, the good and the bad is that i mean i have a recording studio home and i i write a lot uh of my own uh music i record for other people who send me you know files from all over the world and and i can do it here which is an incredible uh benefit to me not to have to think about getting on a plane and going somewhere and recording. That used to be the way you had to do it. But the the, the the downside is that sometimes that I will, the other night, I was just working in here happily on something that I was writing. And I, and I'll, sometimes I'll deliberately not look at the clock. And I looked and it was, you know, four hours later and it was like late night, early morning. And, <laughs> and, and I just, uh, 
And, and I think, okay, well, I don't mind that because if I'm focused and I'm clear, I can put in very, very long days and they might be broken up by, you know, some of it is um, composing. Some of it might be recording for myself or recording for someone else. Some of it could be sometimes, uh, you know, I do a lot of prose writing as well. And, and some of it might be um, dedicated to that. Uh, that's a little a little easier in as much as <clears throat> if I'm not sitting in front of my computer typing, I can I can get out whether it's my iPhone or my iPad and I can speak extemporaneously into a program and then I can transcribe it later. I go, that's a good idea. You know, I'm not home in front of all the you know that stuff. I mean, you know, as musicians, we do the same thing, and you you hum something in to your, you know, your iPhone or whatever you have and, um, and you save it and maybe work on that later or decide that's, that's really worth pursuing or no, that was a waste of time. But uh, so I do many things in the course of a day and sometimes they're very long days, but I don't, I'm not complaining at all. I, yeah. I love that. I'm at a, I'm at really a, a great place in my life right now where I can do that and I can just kind of afford to do the the things that I want to do uh, artistically in projects with people or my own things. And um, I, I thought about that for a long time when I was on the road. You know, I, I really had, when I look back on it, it was, you know, about, you know, 40 years of touring, recording, touring, recording with not only with Jethro Tull, but other people. And right. even when was not on the road. I, I was not home milking the cows. I was, you know, I was working with other people. And then I go straight back out on the road or go back and we'd be working on a record or whatever. So <clears throat> I, I'm trying to curb that a little bit and, and, um, and, and be, and, you know, be, I'm very focused on things that I want to do. And I know that I can get it done. I know myself well enough to know that even though I've got, sometimes four, five, six different things on the boil in different stages of development, I don't really lose my place where I am. I usually can get back to that. And I think sometimes musicians, and particularly drummers, can be multitasking individuals because we, first of all, we have to learn independence. And in the, in the same way, that I think, you know, I, I've often read four or five books simultaneously and not really gotten lost in them i mean sometimes you know you had one from beginning to end but i have them scattered all through my house and studio and all that and so uh i i I think that that comes from the in a sense the musical independence that i was going to link that to that as drummers you know a lot of people will say almost everybody in the band will go i can play the drums and they can (laughs) and they go Doom, bat, boom, boom, bat, and that's kind of it. And but <clears throat> you know, there's some people that have turned that into a real art form, uh, and I seriously mean that. That's not that easy to do to make it sound great and feel great and be economical. But it gets very complicated quite quickly after that. Suddenly, you know, you're thinking about you've got to learn, you know, your alphabet, which are all the rudiments, and then independence, and you've got to have your hands working independently you have to have your feet 
working independently or sometimes in tandem with your hands. And if you're, you know, singing a background vocal, you now you've got five-way independence and I suppose six-way independence if you want to say, and in a sense, <clears throat> you are mentally having to keep track of all of that. So there's, there's inbuilt to what we do as um, drummers and percussionists. There, there is something that's quite unique to our instrument that may have a lateral effect <clears throat> on other, th other things that we do. And whether that's, you know, multitasking or kind of, I, I can, I seem to be able to keep, you know, you know, uh, most of these things straight. And hopefully, you know, as long as you keep all your marbles or most. <laughs> <laughs> and does your, does your wife have to remind you that she exi exists and you're like. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, there's times where we'll, we'll just try to make a, you know, like a, you know, a, a date night or, um do something that's that you know i'll switch off we'll say okay at such and such an hour i i will switch off the engines and maybe after she goes to bed i might come back in my studio and work for a little while longer but um <clears throat> i remember when i first started studying orchestration intensely i would work all night long and i wouldn't suddenly it's like seven in the morning and and i'm and i'm looking out in the and you know the you know, the, it's getting light out, and the birds are, you know, landing on the, on the, uh, in the trees, and 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 if I had, when I was taking these orchestration classes, sometimes I would go straight to those. I wouldn't even go to sleep, and um, but the energy of that kind of kept me going. I'm not sure that's a totally healthy thing to do, and <laughs> right? On a daily basis, it certainly would not be right. But it, but, it, but it stresses a point about everybody has a different way of working it. And we, we oftentimes when you're thinking about a career in music when you're younger, oftentimes I think the attraction is the independence, uh, the ability to be self-employed or, you know, kind of have the freedom not work within the confines of what you see around you. And I, I totally get it. And, uh, you know, this last year has really uh, allowed people to, uh, you know, find out more about themselves, their, their work pace, their personalities, as far as uh, what, they, what they do and how they spend their time. Uh, you know, so some people need structure and other people thrive without structure. Uh, but I'm with you. Um, well, that, that's a very good point, and I think that that the, the if there is an upside to this terrible pandemic, it's that with certain people, it allowed them to reevaluate where they are and rebalance what they're doing and how they're doing it. Yeah. And sometimes you know, there's a it, it has. I have. I will say it hasn't changed my uh, my work. Uh, my working schedule that much. I mean, I work a lot on my own at home in my studio and you know, people call us that way. It doesn't, it hasn't impacted me the way it has other people, but it has in subtler ways. And I know many people that it is impacted because suddenly they are faced with not doing the thing that they did every day and or every night. And they are, uh, Having to think about, well, do they reinvent something? Do they develop a new skill? 
Right. You know, maybe somebody's learning to play another instrument or, or getting better at working the door in their studio or, you know, composing things that, that perhaps they wouldn't have time for. And, and I, and I, to that extent that you can make that parallel to what's happening today. When I was on the road, I would write on the road, but I would do it in little fits and starts. I had a keyboard and go in my dressing room and, 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 you know, I mean, I'd be, I'd be writing in hotel rooms and on, in planes and, and, you know, wherever we were, I mean, but it was very, and I had to break that. And, and then I had to get into performer mode. And, and so I had to always leave enough time to do that. So I couldn't follow some of the things I was working on to their logical conclusion that day, because I had to go to work to my other job. And, <laughs> yeah. and so with, with this kind of thing, you can if if everybody is you know things are opening up and people are working more, but it it may have given people actually a a chance to develop some of the things that they wish they could have done, but they were traveling or working all the time. By the time they got back, they were maybe just too tired, and suddenly, of course, nobody knew it was going to be you know we're on what are a year and two months now with this. Mm-hmm this uh this thing but uh i think there there are some benefits that that can be derived and i'm sure some of your listeners have have done that and oh my. Out, yeah but to add to their you know to their uh their tool belt well i can say that when this all first started I don't know how my co-host Zach felt, but I I wondered. It's like, man, I wonder what's going to happen with the podcast because we 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 produce one of these every week. Uh, how's that going to affect kind of our interviews with our performers and those that record and you know and all these things? And it hasn't slowed down a bit. It's just maybe turned a little bit. Has refocused uh, as a lot of our guests have refocus their energy, like you say, on learning something new, finally having the uh, uh, mental bandwidth to invest in something they've always wanted to. And maybe they didn't even realize it, but they're like, oh my gosh, you know what? I really want to do this now. And it sounds like it's yes. something that you you kind of were doing before, you know, as, as, as everyone says, pre-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, the word of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like, you know, uh, BC and AD. Yeah. <laughs> Think about those terms in, in the fuller, you know, uh, in the fuller eye of history. That's right, right. PP, pre-pandemic. Um, and so uh, while we're on that subject, I'm, I'm really curious to know about the evolution of your home studio because – you sound like one of the early adopters of a home studio setup. And 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 it's been many years since I've seen your DVD, but I seem to remember in the DVD that you did, I believe for DCI, you had you were like in your home studio. Like it was one of the first times I ever saw somebody in their house with a like was is that is it am uh, I that, have, that, but that was my other home, so that was my first one. And I built a, a bigger one that this one I've had, you know, 25 years and I've added to and necessarily gotten better as an engineer because when I'm working 
Um, I, I actually really enjoy that. Um, it's not, it, it, it is easier, you know, um, I haven't done it for over a year, but where, you know, you would go to a studio and I would just be asked to play. You have a producer, you have an engineer. All I have to do is play and learn the music and, 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 you know, give some good performances in the, in my studio. If, if somebody is giving me a track and, and it's kind of a blank slate, I will, first of all, I have to think of the part. I'm I'll write the part and go, is this, does this feel right from a playing point of view? And then listen to it as a producer, produce that. Then I have to play it. Then I have to engineer it. And, um, and you're doing, you know, I mean, there's, there's probably, and if I'm writing it, then, you know, it's really from the ground up, you know, I'm writing it, I'm playing it, I'm producing it and I'm engineering it. So that takes sometimes a lot longer, oh, yeah. but it gives me an empathy with each one of those positions because sometimes the producer part of me will say to the musician part of me, you've done five or six or sometimes I'll do, you know, Sometimes I'll do one take or two takes and I know that's it. Sometimes I'll do seven or eight and then I'll go, I'll go through and listen. But sometimes as the producer, I have to tell myself, no, that's good. Let's move on to the next. <laughs> right. That's and, the problem with recording at home. I don't have somebody over me going, that's it. Stop. We're moving on. And so 10, 12 takes later. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of course. And then, you know, you can kind of develop that and, and sort of put yourself in the position of, you're the producer and that other guy is, is, is the player. And then you're going to say, we've got it. It's, it's in there somewhere. Nice. I can finally put my multiple personalities to use. Thank you, Don. <laughs> right. You know, in a way that, that you're thinking about it, it also goes back to the, the independence that, that drummers have to necessarily develop. And there's a lot of really great drummers who have home studios and really do f fine work from there. And I think that's uh that's it's we're it's still utilizing the same part of the brain. There's just sort of different techniques involved, and of course, when you make records and if you've been in a studio a lot, you understand the discipline that's needed and what songs require. You know, unless you're just making a drum solo album, you know, most people aren't. You know, you you're, you're really having to think um, in a way, get inside the songwriter's head even if you're the songwriter. Um, but uh, to the extent that you go, th that part serves that really well. I don't need to play more than that. Um, um, and sometimes you do, and you have that freedom to do that. I love that. I find that incredibly liberating. And and certainly extends to um, to orchestration work because, you know, I'm putting in one... Uh, part at a time and listening to it but the you know the technology has gotten so good where I, I I'm glad that I learned I learned in you know that 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 phrase that sometimes really doesn't describe things very well but in an old school way I mean I was I learned music I learned how to write it and read it mm -hmm. and, and so I'm glad I did that because in in um and taking orchestration, I mean, I, there were some people in the class, I realized that they didn't, they they never really saw scores. You know, they could play, 
But they didn't, They if they looked at it that way, it didn't make a lot of sense to them. For me, that was a, a natural um, uh, uh, kind of a, a lateral move to make because I could look at that, understand that, and then, and then you begin to be able to analyze that in the same way that might look at a transcription, a drum transcription, break it down and go, oh, that's what it is that he did. Ah, now I see it on paper. Now you, it, it can take some of the, it might take some of the mystery away, but it also it sh- it shines a, a light on certain things that, that might seem more mysterious when you're on the outside of that. So the, uh, the, the technology that's, uh, circling back to that, the technology that's available today and it's changing literally by the day. Yeah, I mean, every yeah. week I read about some new thing, and what I try to do is, you know, I have certain, I have several systems that I I run simultaneously, and one of them is my older Pro Tools system, where I'll record just the you know the the analog drums into that. That's all that really does now. That's its job. And I don't want to touch that operating system because it's bulletproof. (laughs) And then I just, I marry that over to, I network it through the system to the other things. And so everything kind of has a job and it also spreads out the, you know, the load on the CPU so that you've got, um, you know, you always want to have, you know, headroom, but then there's some brilliant young musicians who literally have a backpack with a, with a, you know, with a, macbook air or something like that a pair of headphones a 25 note keyboard and that's their recording studio and they can make great music with that and it's amazing to me i think well mine is i i designed my studio and i sort of did a schematic and it's kind of complicated i got quite a lot of stuff in here but i can make it all work and i'm i look at that and i go god that times have changed maybe that i actually did put together a little system with on my laptop with one of my smaller keyboards and a pair of headphones. So if I wanted to go out onto uh we have a covered deck, you know, and I can, I could sit out there and I could compose just kind of sitting outside. Yeah. But the, as you know, I don't, I've got all the real stuff in here. So I still got to, it might be an idea, but I still got to bring it in here and then, you know, get it all working with the, you know, technology such as it is. But it's getting better, it's getting faster, and people are doing more with, you know, with just, you know, these few tools and some pretty incredible stuff gets made. So, Don, if I could just unpack just a couple quick things. When you're working with clients remotely, sorry to use that word, uh, but I'm going to, just because everyone knows what <laughs> I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, and you're not in the room together, which is can be a challenge because... Uh, it just is. And do you ever demo a drum part and say, hey, am I on the right path here? Do you pass these ideas back and forth before you invest lots of time? Or do you feel like, well, you know, they're calling me, they want me, they want my style, they want my interpretation of their piece of music, depending on who it is. Uh, so I'm going to do this and uh, and here you go. Have a good day, you know. <laughs> well... Well, I would say yes and no to that question because <laughs> yes, there are people that mostly the the work that 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 I take these days is work that people are calling me because they just want to see what what I'm going to bring to it, not because I might be able to play it 
like someone else. You know, there may be those influences that yeah. that uh, might be, you know, references in my own head or maybe even in theirs. But but really these days, you know, you kind of go through that, the ranks when you're starting out and people are wanting you to, you know, and sometimes it's just if it's if it was a sight reading gig, it's just read the read the notes. That's all they want you to do. Play it in good time. Read the notes and um, and, you know, and hold everybody together. But uh, I, I've done that and I'm really enjoying when people allow me to sometimes they'll send it with the drum machine part mm-hmm. and, and I'll have it as a guide. And then then, you know, usually I'll mute that. And then I try to not unlearn it. And I try to observe certain things that I know they want. And sometimes that's they told me, oh, I like that little thing, that little turnaround or this general kind of feel. And and um, then I just try to listen to it and go, if I was given that piece of music with no drums or percussion, what would I naturally do? Where What would my natural musical inclination uh, dictate? And so I, I try to follow that more. However, having said that, sometimes I'll put together a part that will be probably a very close working model to what ends up going on the record. And I'll send it to the artist and I go, what do you think? And they'll go, that's great. That's just what I want. Or could you change this? Or maybe we could change this a little bit here. And they don't very often. They, they just, they, they let me do what I feel instinctively is right. But I'm, I, I'm totally fine with taking suggestions. And I was always, you know, I think was good at working with producers because I was always happy to hear sometimes I'm sure you've worked with people who didn't play the drums, but had a really great rhythmic idea, but had no idea that that might've been really difficult to do on the drums. They're not worried about that. (laughs) Right. They're, they're just going, Oh, that would sound good. So I go, okay, well that's either like, you know, an overdub or you're going to have to have a, you know, two drum parts or, you know, the five hands, you know, whatever it is that, that allows you to do that because, their imagination is not constrained by the physical limitations that we come up against as drummers because you've only got four limbs uh, with, and, and in that sense, I love it when I, when there's somebody that really um, maybe is kind of unschooled as a drummer, but can give me a great idea something I would have never thought of. And then I go, I can do something with that. And thank you for that because that took me off down a different uh, 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 road there. Oh yeah, please get me out of my comfort zone and 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 let me know what it is I can do that so I'm not grabbing out of the same bag. I, sometimes I would be like the the rookie on sessions, but I would just have an instinct about something, and I would say, you know, and they might be kind of locked into this way of doing it. And I'd say, okay, I'll do it this way, but let's just try one like this, and and invariably. They would go, wow, that didn't occur to us. That's that's really good. And so I'm glad that I kind of overstepped my bounds at times in a respectful way. But right. I did that in a way that was um, that, that, that they could see there was maybe something I could bring to it that, that they didn't have to come up with everything and give it to me. And, you know, you know, whether you're reading it or they're singing you the part. So I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't uh, look at that as the, at that. There's some demarcation point at which 
okay, now I'm, you know, being hired for my ideas. I think that if you have an idea and you're being hired as a musician, you know, part of what they're wanting is, well, is that, is your ideas. Now, some producers don't, they just, they just, you know, they're very inflexible, but I would say any good producer will will really hold their fire and they will just they will listen and then they'll know when to step in and say you know what that's great just adjust a little something here or we'll, or you know we'll change the bridge a bit but that that input and that direction i mean i i did some uh tracks is wonderful um r&b kind of pop r&b songwriter in new york named tony kniff i just finished some tracks for him and i put a whole bunch of things that he i don't think he was really anticipating on there all kinds of percussion and interleaved kind of drum parts and all sorts and different interesting sounds and he he said i never expected that at all but he said now i can't imagine that not being there (laughs) i love that that's great and so i i think that that if you work with people who trust you and they might go you know this uh you you're hopefully we'll get to a point in your life where you feel confident enough to offer those suggestions. And sometimes people will go, just shut up and play or just shut up. And right, play. right. I mean, I don't want to take away from everyone, from what people offer. And, and there's things that I feel confident in that if, if you want this thing, uh, I can do, I can do this and, and, and I will pull out maybe some percussion or a, a snare tuning, that um, some of the people that I work for uh, will, I've, I've heard people say, hey, you should hire Matt because he does this thing and that thing for your song. It's like, just just trust me, he'll he'll do it, you know, like, because I, I know that people hire you not just to just play, but they, they hire you to bring your uh, drumming perspective, your personality and your interpretation as from the drummer's point of view to to bring their song to life absolutely that's what they're looking for and you know some people we are we've all worked with those people who have demoitis and they put a drum machine uh, an unyielding drum machine part and that's what they get like married to and that's what they want you to play mm-hmm. and sometimes they end up like going probably using the drum machine because they get so used but but that's that's generally that's generally um writers who for whatever reason, get locked into whether it's a bass line or a, just a ostinato drum part that, you know, that just is unchanging. But I would say that you're right. Most most artists, you know, that, that you work with are really wanting you, you know, you to show up and bring something. And there, there was a, I, I don't know, it was a year and a bit ago I did, I was doing a movie date. And um, though I know like one of my, like, biggest influences a lot of people might not hear this or realize it was was Levon Helm and I just loved that guy's playing I loved his sound and his groove and you know just he played with just such economy but with such it, it, it was just he was so perfect in the band oh, and yeah, yeah. And so I said to the producer you know what this I feel like I need to channel my inner Levon Helm on this track, and I took I took the you know the 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 all the stuffing out of the bass drum. I put the head back on. There I tuned it down real low, and it just kind of it breathed. There wasn't you know there wasn't like a lot of transient attack. I tuned the snare down 
real low. I put some kind of crazy things on the toms, you know, for just, you know, metal bits and, and hung things off the cymbals, just all kinds of stuff. And they weren't expecting that at all. And it didn't, people go, well, that, that, that wasn't what we were expecting at all, but they loved it. And, and, and I thought that was, I, I was really delighted that I had a chance to, to do something like that, that, that would have been really coming from, you know, left field. And sometimes they wouldn't go. And there's, you know, for a while, I remember in the eighties, sometimes I would get hired on records. People thought of me as the ballad drummer. I thought that's interesting that, that I was good at playing kind of slow, uh, uh, you know, pieces that had, you know, maybe some, you know, big stuff in it, but, but, and then there would be other people who thought of me the opposite, like, like, uh, the, the fusion guy or something or the, you know, the big rock guy. And I realized I had all these different identities with different people, depending on who I work with, but they didn't see those other sides that I could do equally well. And then I actually loved doing. And, and so it, it took a while for people to go, Oh, you know, he can do a lot of different things uh, because sometimes people will pigeonhole you. I'm sure this has happened to, to you and mm-hmm. it's happened to me and to your listeners where they think, oh, you're this, you're just a country guy. You're just an R&B guy. You're a rock and roll guy. And that's kind of the extent of it. But as drummers, we have to have an ability to have a chameleon-like, um, uh, a, a chameleon-like ability to, to move between styles, even within the, within a single track, um, where that might be, you know, really appropriate if you're being given some very challenging music. And it's, uh, it's nice when people be, if you have a lot of things you've listened to, I, I do feel, and I'll say this apropos of Jethro Tull and some other uh, artists that I had, you know, been fortunate enough to work with that growing up in New York and playing, I just, I loved every kind of music. And I really, classical music was really the first music, classical and jazz was the first music that I really connected with. I was very unaware of pop music until the Beatles came along. And, and then, um, and then there was all that. And then, you know, R and B and then all the Motown stuff. And then, you know, and then the, you know, the stuff from England and, you know, the progressive stuff and the jazz fusion and straight ahead jazz and all kinds of things. And, and then I'd play in like a, you know, Turkish bands, you know, down in Greenwich village or folk bands or, you know, or, you know, blues, like every single style that you could imagine in New York, I was really lucky to grow up at a time where I got to play. And, and there was better people playing every one of those styles than me, but, I felt like I loved all of those styles of music. So because I loved them, I could bring something to them. Um, there might be people that if you, if you don't like a piece of music, like I always love reggae, there's a lot, you know, like I'm not the world's greatest reggae drummer at all, but I love the music. So I felt like if I connected emotionally to the music, the music would usually tell me what to play and I could always find something regardless of the style. If I, if I liked the music or better yet, love the music. Yeah. And, and so that was a, that was something in the course of say an evening playing with Jethro Tull that drew on every, like every influence that I had growing up and then some, um, you know, and, um, 
Oh, Indian music was another thing I studied. And, you know, we got to work with like just some tremendous Indian musicians, you know, uh, uh, with the band. Um, and, and I, and I really felt like even though I had played that and studied that, I studied tabla. I'm not a great tabla player, but I, I can, I play it in my studio and I can, and I can play it on different instruments and play like tabla phrases that, but, you know, the, the tabla technique is very difficult, but, when we were playing with Anushka Shankar in India or Harry Prasad Charesia, and Harry Prasad Charesia is like the Itzhak Perlman of the uh, Indian bamboo Bansarai flute. And and we were having to learn to play ragas. And I thought, I'm really glad I actually learned how to play ragas when I was in New York because we only had short rehearsal time. And, and even though I couldn't play you know, like Zakir Hussein by any remote stretch of the imagination. When we would come down, we'd all play together and we would play with the, with, you know, Anushka and her band or Harry Prasad and his band. And we would trade. It was, um, I, I, I had something that I could bring to it. I mean, I wasn't putting a turban on my head and trying to, you know, play. <laughs> but, it, but it, but it made me, it, it did make me appreciate the fact that, I could bring something to it by virtue of the fact that I loved it. And I think that's the, that's really the bottom line is if you, if you love something, don't be, don't think that, oh, you've got to like know everything about it and be a complete expert unless you just want to play that style of music. Right, but if right. it speaks to you, you'll, you'll, you'll find the right thing. You just have to listen. That's all. Right. We, and we've had guests on here before that. That you know are are very much into covering you know many styles to stay as busy as possible, and they they love working in in all these different styles and different kinds of musicians. And then we've had guests on that are just really focused on uh, certain styles, and maybe uh, to to the point they may even supplement their income with other types of work, you know, to stay, say, you know, I'm just going to be a hardcore bebop, you know, driver right, and, right. and do that. And just, and, and how everyone's approach is, is, is great. You know, there, there's no, no judgment on, there's no wrong way of doing this, you know, it's just yeah. kind of finding your way. Uh, I, I read about one of the performances you had, it was like a 40 minute raga and there was, it was, it was, a. um, very through composed and you had to uh just with limited rehearsal I, I read about that and um just what a challenge it was but how you got through it and how satisfying that was yeah i mean i sometimes i felt like i was in fact one of the uh, there was um i do a lot of prose writing and one of the pieces that i wrote for a literary anthology that's coming out uh well it's going to be out by now but the pandemic stopped it so one of them, uh, I talked about that experience and about feeling like it was thrilling. It was in the, my top five experiences, but I felt like I was literally hanging onto the musical table with the last digit of my little finger. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, but, but it was because I was playing at the absolute top of my ability and it was really fun and incredibly challenging and it pushed me and and I'm and I just am so delighted to have had that opportunity but I I think that's uh you know when you put yourself in and that was something you know it was like that was kind of part of the the, the thing when we went to India is that they wanted us to play with the Indian musicians who were appearing with us and so we they would very often 
um, uh, we would go to their side of the fence more than the other way around and play their music. But the I, I would encourage you know anybody who gets offered uh, a gig and they might go, oh well, I'm not quite ready for that. You know, is is take it whether it's a reading. Mm-hmm. Gig, I would I would take every reading gig that I could, and 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 that got my reading together much more quickly. Um, that, and I will say there was, there was one thing that Billy Cobham, who I was very fortunate to study with for about an, a year and a half when I was in high school said to me, um, and this is, um, but this go, is going back to putting yourself in the deep end of the pool with something where you don't, you go, well, I, I don't really know that style or what, what would I do or what instruments would I bring is don't let that stop you from doing it. You might find that the challenge of, of actually having to come up to a different level of playing or something very different it is very growth-promoting. And Billy says something that was one of the best pieces of uh, – amongst many things I learned from him. But regarding reading, he said, look, you live in New York City. He said, you know, you're walking down the street. You know, there's there's uh, you know, there's Latin music coming out of the bodegas. You get in a taxi. They're playing something else. They're, you know, you're – People are, you know, I live near Times Square. They're in boom boxes. There's just like music everywhere. He said, whenever you hear something, imagine what that looks like written. And he said, look, there's there's really, he said, in, in most music, most modern music, and jazz included, apart from maybe, you know, some 20th century classical music, you know, Zappa type music or that kind of thing, you're going to see the same figures, same 25 or 30 figures over and over, but displaced at certain places in the bar. But it's the same thing. And I would, whenever I'd hear something, I immediately thought, what would that look like written out? And then I began to identify, I I realized that it's just in the same way that you read, you know, if you see the word idiosyncratic, you might, you know, you might see that and just go, oh, that's idiosyncratic. You're not going idiosyncratic. Right, You're, right. You know, that you see a musical phrase and you go, that's da 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 bang, something like that. And and you see that and you already associate that group of figures with something, uh, with a sound. And it might be starting at different places in the bar. So suddenly when I would go into dates and and I'd think, I, I know that, I've, I've seen that, I've heard that, I know what that sounds like. In the same way that people would say, I don't want to learn to read because it might – it might mess up my style or my intuitive way of playing. I would say, you know, if somebody gave them a transcription, there's some incredibly gifted musicians, not just drummers, but on all instruments that don't read very well or at all. And you might transcribe something they do and they would look at that and they go, I can't play that. And you would say, you just played that. And then then they would begin to look at that and go, Oh, that represents this thing that I do or this chord shape or this this rhythmic figure. And 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 so I was always practicing in a way reading, like walking all over the city or, you know, in a plane or, you know, traveling or whatever. And 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 then I would take that another uh, step and I used to because sometimes when I would, you know, fly to Europe and we would have we might go straight to a festival we're playing where maybe we're gonna do a different arrangement of, you know, some complex piece of music we had. And I would have a tape or we'd have something we 
referred to that we did a long time ago, I would very often, if I didn't have the chance to practice it in my studio, I would sit there on the plane and I would, I pictured my whole drum set in front of me and I mapped the geography and I go, okay, here we are. Okay. This is eight bars here. And then I'm over here on this part of the kit. Now we're, now there's a, there's a fill leading into the, you know, verse one and so on. And, and, and I, you know, kind of mapped out the, the amount of bars and then I mapped out where I would play it geographically. And I could see myself, you know, playing, okay, this is a pattern that breaks up, you know, my left hand is on the hi-hat going back and forth between that and the snare. My right hand's up on the bell and maybe I'm moving that down onto one of the time. And I, I literally, it was like, I drove, I drove the, the, uh, the uh you know the the race course you know in oh, my head. right right now were you and, sitting in a middle seat on the plane because <laughs> I, <laughs> um i'm sure i would have been very unpopular if i was but i tried to do it without without moving my hands it was all a mental thing okay. but the, 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 <laughs> a lot of times like you know people learn stuff on the way to gigs and i just found that literally i i literally pictured my drum kit and, and exactly how I would play, where I would be playing things. And, and very often I would get to, and I would be able to, I'd be able to play it more or less like that when I sat down to play it, even if it was just, you know, at a sound check or a line check. And, and that really served me very well to, 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 um, learn a lot of things in ways where we're not always at our instrument. And I would encourage people to visualize. There's actually a, there is a technique. I was telling a, a, a doctor about this one time. And I think he said, now I could get this wrong. I think he said, oh yes, that's the Feldenkrais technique. And I said, oh, okay, great. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> there's a name for that. But there's, I mean, there is this, it's, it's, it's like visualization of your instrument. You right, know? right. Or, Everybody's done that to some degree. Anyway, that was just a. It's it is fascinating. I mean, I, and, and have you ever written charts for gigs coming? Oh up? yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Sure. And and, 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 and they're full charts. Sometimes they're my shorthand. That because um, I mean, even I remember at the Jethro Tull audition after we went through everything, I played all the prepared music. Then I played a drum solo. And then they said, "Can you play in odd times?" and well, one thing after another, and they said, okay, well, we got a new piece of music. Um, can you learn this? And I said, yeah. And I said, why don't you go have a cup of tea? And, and I, you know, I, I could write, I could transcribe pretty quickly and read it back. And like 10 minutes or so later, they came back and I had more or less transcribed the whole thing and played it down from top to bottom. And they were kind of surprised that I was able to do that rather quickly. And, and, um, I think that 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 kind of ability to if you if you learn that's just a tool for me it was I you know I I spent lots of time just listening to things transcribing for my own enjoyment because I wanted to understand what is that note grouping or what is that yeah uh, yeah working how would that look laid out and even in my instructional video I think I wrote you know several of the charts in there that just in my own hand to, um, that would. Um, and, and that kind of thing does that helps with reading for sure. Well, so I would urge that, and don't 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 think you're going to ruin your innate style by doing that. Right, and, and you know, it's I, I work with uh, different people, and and a lot, oftentimes they're doing a lot of covers of different types of things. And I'm also like this next month, I'm working with three different 
artists, uh, and so I, I'm I've grown accustomed to writing charts, and it's just kind of a mix between like big band and classical and stuff that I grew up reading in Modern Drummer magazine with the you know with the staff type mm-hmm. thing, and. I told somebody last week, I, I'm the Ron Burgundy of charts. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. If you write it down, I will play it. That's a hilarious comparison. You know, uh, I, I it, even if my instinct says um, we're feeling it differently, don't play this, Phil, but it's written. I've got to play it. I'm going to play it. Um, <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, that's great. And and this, that's a – how useful has that – been for you it's been very useful uh you know just to be able to take command of any gig if i'm just jumping in subbing uh on a with a new group of musicians or pulling uh, a song out of uh you know the way back uh you know like a, a deep cut uh, that that a group doesn't play very often and i now everything's digitized i've got an ipad i can just like everything's alphabetized i have probably 700 drum charts uh, oh my fantastic yeah and so i'll i'll just they'll say hey do you remember this song and i might have done it with somebody else years ago and i'm i'll find it you know so I could be, I'll be like, yeah, and I could, even if it's just seeing the tempo and the basic groove and knowing where the stops and starts are is That's enough. That's right. You know, uh, it, it, people seem to really appreciate that, and they, and and it's my reading has gotten better. But all that to being said, in what you were referring to before about just the the, the ability to read, the ability, the recognizing the value in being able to read for that, that people should be aware of. So I have a, uh, just turned 16. Uh, my son, my younger son is uh, at the School of the Arts studying classical guitar and guitar and, and vocals. And he's had a lot of formal training here in Nashville, as you can guess. And uh, when he learns something, maybe picks up his electric and he learns something that he wants to with a band that he's really into, I say, hey, how did you learn that? And he goes, oh, they had it online. They had the, the tablature online or they had the sheet music online. Mm. And so I'm trying to stay out of his way. I really am. you know. It's, but I'm also like, that's great. And I'm glad you can do that. And you can read like a mother. I mean, that's mm-hmm. awesome. But don't forget to, maybe if you want to learn something, don't try and find the sheet music. Learn mm-hmm. with your ear, especially this melodic and harmonic instrument that you're working with. So to not, to, to I'm having the opposite concern with him is that make sure that you are taking some time to learn some music with your ear and not finding the sheet music or the tablature. You know, that's a very, very good point. That is a very valuable point to make to, to, you know, all all players, I think, because, and this was, I, I realized the extent to which people who only read music, but really didn't play by ear were affected. And I was incredibly fortunate. I was about 19 and I, I got the gig with Tio Macero's big band. Tio was Miles Davis's producer, mm-hmm. and and, um, and it was it was 
simultaneously like exhilarating and terrifying. You know? <laughs> you know? And and a lot a lot of the uh, the people uh, not the rhythm section people he chose, but a lot of the because there was a big orchestra and you know strings and winds and percussion, and they were from either from Juilliard or from the New York Philharmonic, and um, and they were because we we did a bunch of um, concerts at Lincoln Center, so it was you know he scored everything out and he knew who he was writing for. And uh, like with the with the like some of the percussionists, like the Philharmonic guys, they would have like literally every single little triangle hit, and every and they could read. They were just incredible readers. And um, at one point, one of them came over and he was looking at my charts, and and you know it had like chords and some slashes and some rhythm figures, and then more slashes, and you know there was a lot of room in there. Right. And he said, well, what do you do between – and I said, well, I, I, I uh, you know, I play a groove, I make it up. And he goes, you mean it's different every time? And I said, <laughs> and I said well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's built around a framework that is a, a similar feel, but I can, I can change that or embellish that. And then I would set up a figure. I see the – you know, like you would in big band drumming, you set that up and – and they, this was really as as incredibly advanced as they were with reading. This was a very foreign notion to them to to try to you you play. In other words, you can play without the music. You can look away, or you can. And 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 I'm I said yeah, and that was that was I discovered certainly at Juilliard there was a lot of people really great musicians, incredible sight readers, and technical ability. But if you if you folded the music up or picked it up and pulled it pulled it away from them they would stop playing <laughs> and, and and that was and so i thought you know i was really that even though i started on piano when i started with drums a few years later that was by ear so i really felt i was always 50 50 right, between right. ear and reading and so what you're saying about your son and about people who um you know are are good at that absolutely developing your ear so that you can play i mean you hear these amazing turkish musicians that they can't read a note of music and they're all playing in like you know 17 8 you know and 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 everybody's dancing and you know thinking about that it's just this phrase is this long you know and that is you know that's kind of the other side of the coin but i think there is a happy medium and people who have the ability to to do both will find that they have more opportunities to work, I suspect. Yeah. So I'm having an epiphany right now is that, you know, because my son is 16, his dad isn't really that funny. And, you know, because a lot of dad jokes, but I'm also <laughs> realizing because I've been a musician all my life, I have some good, I have some good music, musician jokes. And one of them is, Hey, how do you get a guitar player to turn down? You put sheet <laughs> music in front of him. All right. Well, all right. He he's looking at me like, I don't get it. You know that's I've got, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I've got well, sheet music in front of me. I'm playing. I'm not going to turn down. That's right. Yeah. Well, you and and that's and and that's wonderful in a in a way that uh, he's got that ability. And I think that you know I would say to people who can't read, they would go, Oh, I don't know how to read. That's I, I'm I'm too old to learn that. And I remember there was a there was a, a girl, a very good actor, who 
she she was sent to me to to study for she was going to be in this movie and she had to learn how to play the drums so i taught her some basic beats and and then she said i want to learn how to read and and you know she really was a beginning drummer but she asked me this so i said oh are you are you good at math and she said yeah i'm pretty good at math and i said reading's going to be a breeze for you and i just <laughs> said it's addition and subtraction and multiplication along division. It's just those basic things that if you are good at that, you'll be able to work out anything. Um, and, and I, you know, and I showed her just about, you know, subdividing and, you know, it's, it, it was very mathematical in nature. And I think that a lot of people who think that they, they've talked themselves into believing they can't read, but maybe, uh, you know, have an ability, even if it's just a rudimentary ability to, you know, understand, you know, basic math and, you know, how much do you leave when you leave a tip at 15% or whatever, you know, you're, you're doing things like that. All of that can be translated into, uh, into learning to read. Conversely, there's been a few amazing musicians that I know who are amazing sight readers. And I remember asking, uh, you know, one or two of them about, you know, if the, I said, oh, you must have been very good at math. They said, no, no, I was terrible at math. And I, I thought, well, you're doing math like all day long here, you know, when you're when you're reading. But it's uh, sometimes sometimes it's just kind of making the parallel to something else that you do very well to realize that's not as hard as you think. It's It's a psychological barrier. From a, a 2008 article you wrote, Modern Drummer, this is just a, just a, a short clip from it. Uh, you write, it has been an interesting and amazing journey through music, culture, time zones, and compound time signatures, Extra, <laughs> extraordinary people, and of course, food, glorious, exotic food. Every continent and more countries than I can remember thousands of gigs and hundreds of thousands of miles would be a very conservative estimate. We've traveled and seen a lot. Mm, yes. There's just so, there just seems to be so much to unpack and so much that so much ground that this band has covered for you musically drumming, um, stylistically uh touring and experiences uh that it just it seems like it it has checked so many boxes off for uh somebody that's a member of one group you know somebody that i mean I, you know all the other things that you've done the other projects the projects before you joined jethro tall but also just during that your tenure with this band there was just so much going on that it just amazes me that you were craving 
still craving more. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's like anything. It's like, you know, how love multiplies itself. And, and you know, that, that it really, there is not necessarily a finite point in that or music or art. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the deeper you get into that, the the more you want to know and of course the more you you learn the less you realize you know. <laughs> oh yes of and, course and 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 i think that was I, I i think i was referencing that earlier just in as much as i was saying all of the music that i had studied in new york and that i actually was able to utilize in the course of an evening or a tour with the band I feel like, God, how many gigs could you do that on? Not many. I mean, yeah. I played, it's like, no, this is, this is, I knew the style I had to kind of play for this band or this artist. And you, and I could stay in that lane. I was fine with that. But, but it, it, it's very, very rare that you would get something where, oh, can you do this? Can you do this? Can, oh, and, or I would say, I mean, sometimes I would insert things like Brazilian rhythms. Um, Latin American rhythms into the tone music, which is by no means, you know, would you would you say, well, there seems to be overt influences of either of those, but I would reorchestrate the parts that I would play in that music inside of a tall song, and and that might have been a slowed down part of you know some kind of Brazilian or Latin American thing, but it was but that's exactly where it came from. And and it worked wonderfully. And I and, and that that freedom that and the amount of different styles that band embraced and allowed me to call upon was just extraordinary. That is I recognize there's very few opportunities you know you know maybe i don't know you know, playing weather report or something like that and there's you know there's similar mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. cross-cultural influences i mean not that jethro tell us anything like weather report but in terms of that being like maybe a, a like a, a hybrid melting pot of all these different things and that was one of the beautiful things about jethro tell was that whoever was in the band at the time, there was a reason they were in the band, and they were expected to bring their thing. I mean, you still had to observe, you know, the the people that came before you and try to do something that would would be a semblance of that to the audience. So it didn't. Sometimes we would deliberately rearrange things, but you had to know that. But it was also important. The reason the style of Jethro Tull changed and evolved so tremendously was because the different members that that were in the band over the years each brought something completely unique to the band and as a result of that the 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 aggregate sound was a reflection of all of the musical personalities in the band at that time and 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 that as that shifted and changed over the years and somebody would leave and somebody else would come in, then there would be another set of influences. And those were always embraced. Those were always, this was something, I mean, sometimes we didn't talk about it, but it was just, it was, it was like that if it feels good. And I always thought that part of my job description was if I could make it feel good, it wouldn't matter the genesis of that, whether it was an Indian part or a South American or an R and B part or fusion whatever it didn't really matter it's if you made it feel good and you glued everything together in other words you're not trying to crowbar something in there that clearly does not belong but that belongs by virtue of the fact that 
you uh, it, 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 you're responding to the music you're given, and that's how you respond. Now, sometimes you know, if we're making a record, you know, it might be well less of that or a little more of that or whatever it is. But that was um, that was very unique, and and I I am so. Uh, appreciative of that. I have such gratitude to be able to go out and play music as challenging as that every night and to try to get all the notes in the right order and, and get to the end of the tour and make it sound like this is your first night on stage. You're that excited. You know, that took a lot of, you know, focus and discipline so that you, because we could, you could not phone anything in, in that band. <laughs> like that. You, really on your toes. I mean, and I love that. I love the fact that, you know, I, I hope that I, you know, helped keep the other people on their toes and they helped keep me on mine. And, and you really had to be paying very close attention, but I knew that it wasn't, it was not important that the audience was aware of all this kind of, you know, cross current of, of influences and odd times or all these things. Cause if I looked out there at the audience and they were moving, it didn't matter if we were playing in some unusual compound time signature. If they're responding, I'm thinking, okay, that's, I'm doing my job because they're, re- they're responding on a visceral level. And, and this is what, um, this is, this is what translates to an audience, not, you know, it might translate to musicians who go, oh, that was really amazing what they just did technically or whatever. But that's a very small segment right. of the listening public. So as a musician, if you're focused on that, you're going to be focusing on a very, very small percentage of people who are going to really appreciate that for what it is. I think that's the thing about successful, progressive music, so successful, progressive rock bands, if you will, to use them as an example, is that some band situations they really connect with like the very analytical musician brain and others connect with them but also the general audience like i don't know what it is about this band but i just they just resonate with me it could be a, like a non-musician that that really connects oh uh, I know, yeah jethro tolls has always been one of those you know for many many people non-musicians alike you know yeah, no, I, I, somehow we managed to cross those barriers. I mean, musicians really liked it and appreciated what we were doing, but, but most of the, the fans weren't musicians or mm-hmm. maybe played a little bit. And, 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 and that, that was, um, it, it was, oh, listen, there, without question, there was an analytical part of our music brain. Um, and, and, and a lot of that was in, you know, the way we would put things together. But I, I, you know, I recorded almost every show or, 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 and many, many, you know, throughout every tour, if not every night, sometimes you couldn't. And, and I would listen to the gig tapes, you know, I would do the gig twice a day because I would listen to it that like that either after the gig or, you know, the next day, or if I knew there was a problem, something I thought, what, what was that? That, that didn't sound right. Was that me? Was that somebody else? And then I would listen to it. And Ian and I would all review stuff and he would listen to tapes. And sometimes I would bring something in or we would talk about it and then we'd work through it in rehearsal because in the cold light of day, a tape is a really good thing to have. And so we would try to work out, okay, why is that not quite feeling right there? And we and we had a, a, a way to fix it because there was – the, the at the court, there was a very 
analytical part of what we had to do in order to kind of do that. But then when you go out on stage, you have to let that go mm-hmm. and then you have to really play. But, it, but to get to that point, there is a degree of analysis that is necessary. And I think that that, that, that helped me because I was kind of naturally that way always. You know, I was always the gig archivist with bands and artists I'd work with, and I would listen and always just constantly refine my parts. And, you know, and if there was something that somebody else, if it was something that I was doing and I go, that doesn't work, I would take it out or adjust it or change it. Or if it was something somebody else was doing that didn't feel right or maybe they were phrasing way ahead or way behind and it was just kind of a rub or something – I could, you know, we could, we could go through that and fix it. So that, that part of my, my analytical nature served me well in a musical way. But again, I had to, when I went out on stage, I had to let that all go for those couple of hours. Right. Yeah. It can really, really get in your way. What, what, was there a process, uh, for creating your part or, when 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 recording when in the studio was there a process that you guys adopted that kind of became standard for recording uh, a record no there there wasn't any one way of doing it cuz it happened in so many different ways sometimes ian would come in with a very skeletal structure he he would come in with with you know just an acoustic guitar you just like the chord changes and and maybe you know maybe a melody but maybe no lyrics and maybe the melody was going to change and 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 i would always ask him for if he could give me a guide vocal because a guide vocal very often you know there was times where you know he would change something and i'd hear it at the end and i go damn if i knew he was going to do that i would have done this <laughs> you know we, we all had those moments but you know uh there was there wasn't there was times where I remember, you know, he would come in. There was a song. Was it on? I think it was a song called Rare and Precious Chain off of Roots to Branches. And he brought it in. And and it just started. It was just sort of like he was strumming away on acoustic guitar. And it started life at the beginning of the day as one thing. And then he said, well, I got to go off. I'm going to go to somewhere in the house and write a another piece of music I'm, I want to be working on. You guys work on this. When he came back in, you know, four or five or six hours later, it was entirely different. Like that we had slowed things down. I changed the groove entirely and we had put it and we took it. And we, I think we took it into kind of a very Indian and Asian direction. And, and, um, but that was not what he was expecting. But he listened to it and he said, I can do something with that. So so even though it didn't start that way and, and there was really – sometimes he would have very specific things. He might say, oh, I'd like a little hi-hat or, or – um, or you know, don't play cross stick here, or play a you know, uh, you know, more, more, you know, more of a snare hit or whatever. But um, he he gave me a huge amount of latitude to to bring what I felt was right, and we would refine that together. We would talk about it, you know, and he was very analytical too. So we had a great time in the studio, kind of working on things, and you know, and and taking them apart, or you know, reassembling them. And there was one. But there, and there was like another track on that album that we did. I remember we did it the night before. It was sort of an afterthought to all the tracks we'd done. And I did it the night before I was flying back to America the next day. We did the track and, um, 
and he decided he didn't like the track or he didn't he didn't like the music or whatever and but he really loved my drum part so he got rid of everything else and he wrote an entirely new song around this drum part that i played but the interesting thing was that where it crossed over the bar and, and where there would be like i would do a fill or something like that he had it coming in these very unusual ways so when when i when he sent me the the copy of the mix and he I, he wanted to see what i thought i remember thinking that sounds like some other guy playing on there Who's oh that? my gosh yeah and, and he said that's you he said i just rewrote uh, I had a completely different idea, and he put it on top of that, and I was so glad he did that because had he given me the piece of music, I think it's called This Free Will. I think it's that one. Had he given that to me that way, I would have made very different musical decisions, you know. So in a way, he got a completely different performance out of me than he would have if he had given me that piece of music as it ended up on the record rather than however we started it. I don't even remember what uh, – and, and we've got – from that record, we've got a couple of amazing tracks that have never seen the light of day only because he said, you know, they were like some of the best – backing tracks we had done really some incredibly cool stuff and um but he couldn't find the right melody on top or the right lyric that kind of thing so i have you know always encouraged him, i hope you know at some point he'll go back into the vault pull some of those out and go oh like you do that with writing sometimes and you go whether it's a day a week a month a year later and you go now i know what to do with it Maybe, you know, maybe he'll listen to some of these and go, I, I can do something with that now, but, and maybe not. So to answer your question in a very circuitous way, there was no set way that we would do it, but we would work very quickly usually. And, and I would always write charts in the studio. So I was making notes of the bar links and time signatures and where I had to do breaks and feel things. And so I, I had a, because, uh, you know, back then still, you know, nowadays, sometimes the drums are the last one. I would have to try to get a very finished composed part so everybody else could redo their part. Sometimes we would have, you know, sometimes the you know bass and drums and maybe some keyboards and guitar would stay on there. But a lot of times people would replace it so that it would be like, you know, the drums and particularly the drums had to like have a – a complete take. So I was I was writing charts for almost everything in the studio and kind of reading my own charts. Obviously, I you know you you don't need that on stage, but I in order to get through things quickly, or if we're dropping in, you know, and at a point, I knew exactly where I was. Right, so right. that that really helped streamline things. It, it, yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that. You know, that just. For years, you know, drums and oftentimes bass, they had to go down first. And I would always say, uh, it, you know, when it, when you first get to the session, 
you're the first one done for the day. And then sometimes it's a year before you hear that track again when, when everything's mixed and produced and then you get a copy of it later. And you're like, oh, man, I barely remember doing this. Oh, you're, yeah. You're the first one down and the last one to hear it. But and you also you, mentioned that... And you have to be the, the you know, the the genius who gets it in three takes or everybody else take a month to do theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's a guy I'm working with now. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, we're trying to come up with parts with just, you know, an acoustic guitar and a scratch vocal. And I'm trying to, you know, bring something, some shape to the song and energy to the song. And then they're doing like five or six of these songs or with different people and then handing them off to a bass player to record at home. And he's like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just spit these out. I mean, he's a wonderful bass player and is in the studio all the time. So I'm not taking anything away from his abilities, but I'm like, I just handed you everything that you need to come up with the part. <laughs> but again, not taking anything away from what he does, because uh, he's amazing and definitely elevates it. Uh, but but you also... But there, there is no... I, I don't think that there... That's the wonderful thing about music. And you said something to this point earlier, which, which is there's, there's really no... There's no one way to, 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 to make good music. And there's no one way to learn music a lot of people learn it all different ways and 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 are inspired by all kinds of things that you would never necessarily know that was the genesis of what ended up here and and i think that's what's great about music is that there can be that hopefully that unexpected quality all the time and then when you bring other musicians in and say what do you think how would you play this you you get sometimes get results that you could have never dreamed of when you had just done a rough demo. Yeah, it's really or or if you just wait a day and just kind of what you, where your mind is your kind of your headspace is at and how different your approach is. It's 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 really amazing. It is absolutely well, and and a lot of people. I just want to just let, make people aware, to like of the different artists that you've worked with before. And, and one of the records that I listened to last week was the Blue Mask, Lou Reed's nineteen eighty two record. And mm. you know, being familiar with your style and your approach, I mean, I don't know if my my mind was already there, but it's like, yeah, that that's. That's Stone. I, I hear that. But it was really interesting. Um, I, I, I'm not super familiar with a lot of what Lou Reed did or, you know, I'm not, not as a big fan like I know some, some people might be. Um, but what was that like working with him? Because it seems like a completely different type of artist than yeah, Jethro Tull or Ian. For, for oh, sure. yeah. It was in some ways it was quite a hard record to make, but the way it came about was he heard me play in a club in New York and he came up to me and asked if I would be interested in doing a gig with him live. Cause something happened with his drummer and, and um, I said, sure. And I remember going down to the, uh, some rehearsal studio in the village and they, I had to learn his entire set in four hours. And the difficulty was that, there were no charts and there was, and, and it was like the, and, and some of his songs had elements that were like elements of other songs and it was very easy to confuse them. So, you know, I, I, I wrote out some very quick cheat sheets for myself and I had this one rehearsal and then we, we did this gig at Columbia university. That was the first time I played with him. And 
And it was exciting, but it was, I, I decided I had just gotten a second bass drum. I thought, I didn't have any idea really how to play two bass drums. But I thought, oh, well, I'll, this is a rock gig. I'll bring it to that. So in the I had no idea he was going to do this. And so, we, you know, we're playing and it's going really well. And, you know, he's turning around. He's delighted with, with, with what he's hearing, apparently. And then he says, and... And and he goes and he said now he's going to play a solo and he's got two of them and he's pointing at the bass drums I'm going oh my God <laughs> like do with these two bass drums I've hardly like you know like I've just gotten it so I'm, anyway I, I I did something that that seemed to go out you know over pretty well and then afterwards he gave me a big hug and he says I'm going to be in touch with you and um, at that point I think he had he sort of disbanded. The band he had at that point, I was in, I was in California. I was doing like a lot of studio work, and I had a band called Maxis. We were signed to Warner Brothers. It was a fantastic band with uh, uh, Michael Landau was a guitar player, oh, Mark wow. was a bass player, Robbie Buchanan, and uh, who was a, a great session keyboard player, and who I'd worked with with Bette Midler and uh, and and uh, Mark Leonard, who'd also worked with Bette. And myself and Michael O'Mardian produced us, and so it would have. It was a very, it was a great record, and musicians often cite this. But it was like I was doing stuff like that, and you know, I don't know, you know, Laura Branigan records or Jim Messina things that would be like considered sort of West Coast. But Lou, meanwhile, like he he had no idea that was like I was sort of doing that. He just loved this kind of raw thing that I had when I played with him. So he would call me up and we'd have these like long discussion for hours on the phone. And um, he started sending me like cassettes, literally with like him sitting at his kitchen table with his acoustic guitar. And he'd send me the cassette with a lyric sheet he'd hand write out and then it was kind of started with just the two of us on the blue mask. And then he said, I've got to find a bass player. And, um, and, you know, he'd looked for just trying to find the right kind of, but he wasn't, he was looking for a very unusual kind of bass player. So he got this guy, Fernando Saunders, who was just phenomenal bass player, but he came from playing with Jeff Beck and John McLaughlin and, and, um, you know, was in, it was in, Jan Hammer, those 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 kind of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, but he has a he played fretless, very lyrical. And then he had Robert Quine. He he finally settled on him on the other guitar. From uh, he was in I think Richard Hell and the Voidoys were like a early punk band. And anyway, so on my I remember I would I'm set up in the middle between everybody, and on my right side with Lou and Robert. It was just fucking anarchy. Oh, excuse my language. No, there. no, it's okay. <laughs> it, it was it was complete anarchy. And Fernando and I were like hanging on to each other for dear life, you know, because it was like we were trying to – I remember at one point saying to Lou, you know, this is in seven or nine. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, because he gave me his lyric sheets and he didn't write it out. And and I think he was sort of delighted. I said, well, you know, this phrase is this long or this – and, and um, so – um, he he was learning that, like, because he said, "Oh, I'm just a four four guy, you know, with the occasional three or six, but but you know, nothing more than that." But this was, uh, um, I, we would get finished with these takes, and I don't remember that we did a lot of takes. We sort of rehearsed in the studio. 
But I didn't know what we had, to be honest. It was so intense with, with, you know, the anarchy on my right. And then, you know, Fernando and I were sort of grounding each other, uh, trying to just kind of keep things together on the bottom. And, and they, uh, I, there may have been a few guitar solos over and probably vocals, but Lou had given me the guide vocals. So I, I kind of knew what, what it was going, even though he wasn't singing as he was playing guitar, it was very live. It was, I mean, really, really I just, a lot. I, it just sounded like just at this stage, you know, I mean, it's 82 and I know you did another record with him as well, but this seemed just like a, just a mashup of different musicians and doing different, not, not, I mean, it worked well together, but when I think of just kind of this New York uh, pseudo punk alt rock, I mean, I don't know what all the, all the yeah, words yeah, yeah. to use, um, you don't think of fretless bass. <laughs> no, you, you don't. And it was, it was, it was a very, it had a very New York aggressive thing. And I could play that way. I'm from New York, you know? So for me, yeah. that was, and that was the night Lou came to see me. I was playing something and, and it, you know, they, they gave me a lot of room and I really, you know, played out. And, and, uh, uh, though I didn't know he was there, it was just, I was playing the way I seemed to be right to play it. He came up to me afterwards, but, you know his music. He he would turn around to me, and 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 it would be like, you know, he would be like standing like three feet in front of me, and like more, yeah, give it more, and and like he was like really encouraging me to totally go for it. You know, he was not looking for you know some like you know perfect kind of you know L.A. pop track. Forget it. You know that was not, that was not mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. So it was great because it was it was sort of a different side of what I could do, but it was the I guess the more animalistic thing. And then I never and then when the record came out and I listened to it, and then the response that record got, I, I realized I was in the middle of this maelstrom, and I didn't. It was so intense that I couldn't evaluate exactly what it was that we had on our hands because. It was just, it was unlike anything I had ever done. And now I listened to it and I really got the, it, it was after the fact that I really got the vision of the whole thing that, that he, you know, why he picked Fernando, why he picked me, why he picked uh, 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 Bob Quine. Um, and and uh, you wouldn't have thought necessarily the four of us would ever be in the same room together. Um, but somehow that, that worked and, you know, that's, you know, sometimes the friction of different styles rubbing up against each other are the things that um, uh, can make something really interesting and, and unusual because you do have a little bit of that, uh, of those those rubs. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really, it's it's re- it was really fun. It was really fun. I, I really encourage people to, to check it out. Uh, the Blue Mask, uh, Lou Reed's record, it was... It was great. I know you say you're from New York and you, you can hang with these guys, but but Don, you did apologize for, for using the F word, so I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I really believe you. Uh, you, you listen, you're, feel free to blank that for the... For, I, I don't usually... I try not to do that in interviews, but, but you know, Lou Reed, I guess, elicited that, that uh, response. That's you know? great. You're not you know? using it gratuitously at all. I mean, if you... Use it once. It's like when a producer says you, you can hit this crash symbol once in this song. It's going to be the best crash symbol ever. So, 
Well, okay. Yeah, right. I, I don't know if I, I want to. Well, I, well um, you know that. Uh, um, yeah, that. Uh, well, that's fine. I mean, that was that was a very New York experience. So there you have it, part one of my interview with Doan Perry. Please stick around in a couple weeks for part two. Uh, next week, Zach Albetta will be interviewing New York City drummer Ross Peterson. Check that out. So once again, big shout out and thanks to friend of the show and former guest Jack White for connecting us with Doan. Come back and check out part two. Uh, come back and check out uh, Zach's interview next week. Please uh, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Uh, it helps us grow, helps us reach many, many more people. But we appreciate everyone's support. We appreciate you listening. And uh, I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.